I'm your host, Cullen, and this is Cauldron, a military history podcast. Let's go back to the age of muskets and bayonets, to the gray skies of a frigid Estonian November in 1700. Let's go back to a time when a young lion roamed the Baltic freely and defying all the odds won the day. Let's go back to November 19th, 1700 and the Battle of Narva. Hello again, guys, and thank you for joining me once more. Again, my name is Cullen, and I'm your host, and this week we've got a very interesting story for you. But before we get to that, a little bit of housekeeping. Just uh, keep in mind that we are on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. I post as regularly as I can. Uh, But there's some interesting images there, some cool little side quest things in terms of uh, factoids and whatnot. And there's often maps and quizzes and things that you can participate in. Don't forget, if you get the chance, rate, review, subscribe, and share the show as much as you can, just because it helps get more ears on the show. And that's always good for all of us. It means that I can maybe one day devote more time to this. But regardless, let's get to the battle we are talking about today, the Battle of Narva. And before we do that, I'd like to kind of put it in its proper context within European history. The Great Northern War itself rarely gets much play in the West. Uh, It certainly, growing up in the U.S., didn't get much play in our social studies or history classes. I think especially uh, you, you probably had to find a course for it in your college if they had it, if you wanted to learn anything specific about it. So the Great Northern War, what is it? Why is it important? Well, it's important mainly because if that war, the Great Northern War, had gone in another direction, you don't have Russia doing what it's doing today. Or likely you don't have Russia doing what it's doing today. In fact, you probably don't have Russia as we know it. Uh, The Great Northern War was a massive struggle between the Russian Empire under uh, Tsar Peter the Great and the Swedish Emperor King Charles XII, uh, the Young Lion. And this struggle was kind of the deciding factor on who was going to be the power in Northern Europe. Was it going to be the Lutheran Charles and a more kind of Scandinavian-centric power base, or was it going to be the Orthodox Peter and Moscow slash St. Petersburg kind of dictating what the Baltic region was going to uh, do in the future and how it was going to interact with the rest of Europe. So the Great Northern War is the the chessboard on which that deciding factor is, is being played out on. And uh, it's a fascinating struggle. It really, it lasts, uh, it lasts 20, 21 years. Uh, you've got 18 years of which you have Charles the Twelfth, who is one of history's great commanders. He's at, uh, you know, he's one, he's up there with the Fe- Frederick the Great and and Adolphus uh, Gustavus Adolphus, who was his great great uncle. And Frederick the Great is, you know, not related to him, I don't think, but definitely a, a spirit animal type of uh, kindred spirit to him. And we'll, we'll dive into that a little bit later. And so when you're considering the Great Northern War, it's not just this kind of little piddling fight off in the distance that nobody really cares about. Yes, there are other things happening at this time in Europe. I believe the Austrian Succession War is happening. There's uh, obviously the continuation of the colonization of, of the rest of the world by the European powers. That's all happening. But the Great Northern War is really the most important conflict, in my opinion, of the turn of the, 
uh, of the turn of the 17th and 18th century, that 1700 to 1720, I think this is the most important war. And I know that there's a war we're going to cover in a little while when we get to certain other battles that a lot of people will say is more important. I would disagree. But let's get into it. So the Great Northern War saw Frederick of Denmark and Norway. So Denmark and Norway are not two separate countries at this time. They are one kingdom. Uh, and their king, Frederick, allied himself with Augustus of Poland-Lithuania, who was also the elector of Saxony, one of the uh, German, uh, the Holy Roman Empire's little free independent kingdoms. Uh, so Augustus is the king of Poland-Lithuania and the elector of Saxony. And he and Frederick of Denmark-Norway teamed up with Peter the Great of Russia. Now, he's not quite Peter the Great at this point. I don't think he gets that title until just before he dies. And I want to say he dies in 1726. I think he gets the Great added on to his name in 1724, 25, whatever it is. We're going to call him Peter the Great because that's kind of how I know him. Uh, these guys all come together in 1699 and they create a secret alliance to target young Charles Twelfth of Sweden. Now, Charles is very young. When, he's, uh, when he inherits the kingdom of Sweden at his coronation, I believe he's 15 or 16 years old. And at the Battle of Narva in 1700, he is 18 years old. So, very young. But that doesn't necessarily mean incapable. Nor does it mean uninspired or lazy or anything that you might associate with a 15 or 18-year-old kid today. Nope, not the case. Charles Twelfth is the opposite of all those things. In fact, he might be too aggressive, too, um, too energetic, and too ready to fight, uh, as we'll see later on. The Secret Alliance hopes to steal land. Basically, they're, they're seagulls. They're carrion birds. They're trying to uh, just pick on this young kid and steal whatever land that they can grab off of him before either he gets good at fighting back or the other European powers realize that there's a, a kind of a, a large-scale bullying activity happening in the Baltic region and might step in to try and keep any particular group from becoming too powerful. The stated aims of, of Tsar Peter the Great is that he wants the provinces of Ingria and Karelia. Ingria is a 75-mile-long strip of land that's on the south shore of the Gulf of Finland and would give great access to the Baltics, along with Karelia, which is a huge land, a uh, huge kind of smattering of land that's got forests and lakes and all sorts of, of good natural resources that also go along the uh, Gulf of Finland and uh, all the way to Lake Ladoga, which combined would give Russia really good access to Baltic portage, which is a thing that the Russians have always been very concerned about. Historically, they're always in search of more portage. It's interesting, you have one of the largest countries in the world is also, oddly, one of the most seemingly penned in and one of the most uh, geopolitically claustrophobic. Uh, Russia, I think it has like 12 or 13 different time zones, and yet somehow it always feels like it's being picked on by everybody else. And that's mainly because it doesn't have a good warm water port or even a good uh, not all year port but something close to a, a year-round port like in the baltics so russia is always on the seek for that conversely sweden is kind of in the same boat where it's got enemies on all sides it feels like it's got a fight to keep its uh keep its sovereignty keep its independence and so it's willing to do that to a certain degree and charles is just the right guy to be in charge when when the proverbial crap hits the fan because he is extremely aggressive and naturally uh, a, a tactician of, of great ability. So Tsar Peter wants Ingria and Karelia, Frederick of Denmark and Norway, 
wants whatever he can grab off of the uh, Swedish coastline, and Augustus wants some of the Baltic European coastline that the Swedes won in the 1600s. So that would be like the city of Riga, which will play a part in the story as we move forward. So the the Ingria and Karelia provinces were taken from Russia in the what they called the Time of Troubles. And this is a period during the earlier part of Peter's life before he was czar. Russia had kind of collapsed into not quite open civil war, but lots of disunity, discontent, and other countries recognizing that there was no solid Russian power base kind of swooped in and grabbed what they could, and that included Sweden. So Tsar Peter wanted to get that back, and he wanted that access to the Baltics. This alliance, the secret alliance, hoped to divert and divide Charles's attention and his strength. So they were trying to draw him over to Denmark and at the same time have Peter and Augustus swoop in on the eastern part of the Swedish Empire. Then that would maybe force Charles to divert his attention. And while he's moving strength that way, then Frederick of Denmark might be able to gobble up a couple other pieces and so forth. And they hope to just kind of ping pong ball Charles of Sweden back and forth until they had essentially dwindled his his kingdom back down to Sweden itself, if not taken it entirely. That does not happen because Charles is brilliant and like all the generals that we've talked about and we will talk about in the future who are revered and considered among the highest of history's captains, Charles moves quickly, maybe at times too quickly, like Caesar and Alexander, who he reportedly had a biography of uh, on the life of Alexander with him throughout his campaigns. Uh, Charles moves really fast. He moves faster than his opponents can handle and prepare for. So when the Danes move first, they strike and and take a little bit of Swedish territory before they know what's happening. Charles is landing his forces on Zealand in, uh, in Denmark and threatening Copenhagen. They're basically encircling Copenhagen and getting ready to put the, the capital of Frederick's uh, kingdom under siege. And so almost before the war even had the ability to start, Denmark has to sue for peace and is knocked out of the war. So uh, this is where Charles starts to build his reputation and his name as being bold, as being ferocious, as being uh, quick and brilliant. And in a matter of of weeks, he knocks out one of the major uh, opponents that he was going to face in the Great Northern War. And now it's down to Augustus and Peter. So Charles, once he secures the peace with the Danes, he loads up his men and has a choice. He's got to figure out where he wants to go next. Uh, But on the way there, he has to load his men onto boats and go across the Baltics in the fall, which is dangerous. There's all sorts of terrible weather that could uh, come up out of nowhere and either destroy or disperse his ships and that's actually what happens along the way his his fleet is kind of sent in all directions of the compass and some of the ships actually sink and Charles suffers pretty severely in in the process in fact a lot of his cavalry is uh, injured along the way the horses breaking their legs uh, up against their holding pens on board the ships during the storm uh, he finally arrives at the uh, the one of the cities that Sweden owns along the Baltic coast, and he realizes that Augustus of Poland-Lithuania has decided to back off a little bit. He didn't realize uh, that Denmark was going to get knocked out so quick, and he wants to see a little bit more of this Charles guy in action before he's willing to uh, invest his army against Charles. So he, instead of continuing to put Riga, the city of Riga, under siege, Augustus backs off and pulls his army away, 
from the firing line. Riga is extremely important. It's a very wealthy city, a uh, very wealthy trading port for Sweden. And so that would have been Charles's first priority upon landing was to ensure that his supply line and his, uh, his kind of important economic and financial center on the mainland was secure before he moved on to deal with the Russians. The fact that Augustus pulled out uh, and pulled away meant that Charles had the ability to now turn and face Peter, and he had a reason to, because he heard that Peter, in all the commotion while Denmark was getting knocked out and while Charles was sailing across the Baltic and Augustus was making up his mind as to whether or not he wanted to fight at all, Peter invested the city of Narva and put it under siege. And Narva is in modern-day Estonia, and it was built by the Danes in the 1200s, and it was a very busy seaport during and throughout the time of the Hanseatic League, which was a bunch of uh, German independent cities and states along in the Baltic region that kind of created a mutual protection treaty that was also a, tr a trading and financial protection deal. Um, so the Hanseatic League was a big deal in this area, and Narva was part of that. Uh, in its prime, it was a it was a it was a big time mover up in that area. And at the time of the Battle of Narva in 1700, it was still a fairly large trading port with a lot of Russian goods from uh, I think it was Novgorod and Skov that would move in and out of Narva before heading to the market and the Baltic. So an important city for both the Swedish and the Russians. It was only 20 miles from the Russian frontier. The town itself was pretty Baltic in its look. It was a traditional German-style town with brick houses and uh, Lutheran church spires and, uh, you know, just a, a standard medieval-looking village uh, with a river that ran kind of wrapped around it so the river narva was a fairly large river that covered the or or sided up against narva on three sides so from the north on the east and in the south narva had the river running against it and narva itself kind of bulged out into the river kind of like a a backwards if you put a the letter V on its side with the small point facing to the right, that's what Narva looks like. And Narva had high walls, and each of those layers of walls had bastions. It was a fairly defendable fortress. And it also had a connected castle called Ivangarad, which was was, you know, heavy. It was short but very very dense it was uh, it was kind of like a russian weightlifter uh so it was that was built by the russians in 1492 and this all kind of created for an interconnected secure facility so the whole city and the castle and the walls all made it a pretty tough nut to crack even with a large force and, and a lot of artillery no matter what happened peter was going to have a hard time getting the city to fall and the city itself had 1,300 infantry, 200 cavalry, and 400 civilian militia to defend itself. And that was, that was a good amount. That was, that was enough to do what needed to be done to protect and defend the city walls. And it was a good amount if the Swedish ever sent a, a, a saving army or an army to, to break them out, they would be able to help and do some damage on the other side. So... Let's get to the actual battle itself. Uh, the run-up to Narva, we see the Russians under Peter, they show up at Narva, they put it under siege, and by that I mean they have the help of a Saxon engineer who builds a wall of circumvallation. So it's a wall that encompasses from the western side, so with the river on the north, east, and south, the Russians only have to worry about building a wall along the western side of Narva. And think of a capital letter C. Uh, that's basically what it looks like. They've built this circumvallation line. So that means that there's one wall on the inside facing the city of Narva. And then there's another wall on the outside facing out west towards the open ground. And this is so that they can both 
defend themselves and attack. Uh, and this wall is, is really significant. It's not a little palisade type deal. It is a nine foot high wall with earthwork redoubts all along the four mile length of the line. It is a, it's also got a six foot deep trench running the entire length. So anybody who's got the chutzpah, if you will, to attack this line or, or attack these Russian lines has to A, make it across open ground, probably under artillery fire, then make it across a six foot deep trench and a huge earthen uh, redoubt and then climb a nine foot high wall, all while being shot at by the enemy. All that's to say that it was a tall, tall order. The first week of November, the Russians begin to bombard the city of Narva and they continue for a couple weeks and very little, uh, little sign of effect actually uh, appears because the Russian gun carriages are poorly made. They are falling apart. The Russian infantry assaults are kind of breaking up against uh, the, the Narva walls. And then the ammo for the cannons is starting to run out. So there's not much happening in the siege of Narva that is going the Russian way. That doesn't mean that they're losing because... Again, the city of Narva is encircled, and so the defenders are probably suffering. Food shortages, uh, there's probably a lot of, of chaos and kind of confusion going on, and they are being bombarded. So it's likely that they were suffering, but not to the degree that Peter the Great wanted. So Peter, he sends out a 5,000-man horse unit to the west to kind of recon the area and scout the roads out west and just kind of keep track of wherever Charles is or whenever the Swedes might uh, begin to appear. And then he decides to take off and he wants to ensure that he can keep his men well supplied. So he's going to go, uh, he's going to basically go and just round up as many more men as he can get, as much more ammunition and supplies as he can get, and then come back to Narva. Some people have said that this was him running away or somehow uh, being a coward. As uh, Robert Massey, who is one of the key sources I used here, uh, points out, Peter has repeatedly and would repeatedly be in the front line of battle. He would be on the decks of warships in battle. He was famously a brawler, a very physical presence and a physical warrior. Uh, it's not likely that he was afraid in this situation. It's more likely that he knew that if he sent a lackey to do this, it would take longer uh, and likely be more uh, laborious and dangerous for the men that were fighting at Narva. It was probably quicker and easier if he just went and did the rounding up of men and supplies himself. That's probably the right call. And Peter probably understood that this is European warfare in the uh, 18th century. Even when the sh Swedish show up, they're going to, you know, they're going to reconnoiter the ground and they're going to start setting up defensive positions and they're going to start entrenching and they have to put out their artillery and they have to set up a camp and they have to do all these things in the school of war book, the kind of checkmark list that uh, the gentlemen of warfare at this time would do. And that would all take time. And Peter probably assumed that he would have enough time to run his errands and get back before the battle even began. But he didn't realize that he was facing someone who was probably one of the key components in changing how wars were fought. Because Charles XII was not about to show up and reconnoiter or dig trenches or, uh, or by any means build a camp. In fact, he couldn't do any of that stuff. But let's get to Charles XII. His situation as it stands, he re you know, he kind of gathers his forces after landing on the Baltic coast. He gets the ships that were blown off by the storm and they come back to him and he starts building up his forces and training. And this is all mid to late October. Uh, he's kind of prepping 
in early November for the actual move on Narva, and he's trying to pull his men and his as much of his force as he can together. Problem is, is that he is getting his intelligence, and it's not good. Uh, it looks like the Swedish would be facing three or four to one odds, and there are rumors that it could be as high as eight to one. The Russians are defending in dugout positions, which means that the Swedes will have to attack, which if any, if you know anything about military history, when you're attacking a dug-in or defended position, you typically want like five to one advantage in numbers. Uh, the more, the better, but definitely anytime you're attacking a defensive position, three to one is, is like cutting it close. Definitely uh, one to four or one to eight is not uh, not the winning manual by any means. The other thing that they've got to keep in mind is that it's a seven-day march from the base camp on the Baltic coast to Narva itself, and in that seven days they'd be crossing country that was ravaged pur purposely by Russian forces. They were stripping the land, not just of food and fodder, but of any kind of uh, structures that might give shelter. So these Swedish forces, these Swedish infantry and cavalrymen are crossing this land with only the food that they have on their backs to eat, with nothing over their heads while they're marching. So every night they're sleeping out in the open with the, the snow and rain or whatever is in the night sky coming down on their face. And and the king, to, to his credit, Charles Twelfth, is with them. And he's living like that. He's he's a famous warrior uh, king. He is wedded to the service in the classical sense. He like he never marries. He's always on campaign. He's always on maneuver. He's again they they say that he had a book of Alexander the Great's uh, you know a biography of Alexander the Great with him on on his travels. Uh, he was not afraid of taking risks. He's another physical king where he, he wants to be in the front line to the point where it almost likely caused him his career and his life. It definitely cost him his life, um, as we'll get to towards the end. But so Charles is facing a really tight spot. He knows that he has got to get to Narva and he's got to win at Narva. Uh, the other thing to keep in mind is he hasn't made any winter preparations. So it looks like if, you know, if all this kind of goes the wrong way and the Russians win or, or if he doesn't attack at Narva, then he doesn't have any place to stay for the winter. And it's not like you can just put up a, uh, you know, put up a, a tent and spend the Estonian winter in a couple of mealy tents. And this, all of the, the, the cards stacked against him drove one of his commanders, uh, command, uh, General Renskold, to say, quote, if the king succeeds, there never was anyone who had to triumph over such obstacles, end quote. So he's saying basically that there is so much against this guy that if, on the off chance, if he succeeds, it's possible that nobody's ever faced a more stacked deck in history, uh, which from Renskold, who's a a veteran. He was an experienced European soldier. That is a a very high uh, high commendation from a guy like Renskold. So on November thirteenth, the Swedish set out with ten thousand five hundred and thirty seven men under the blue and yellow flags of Sweden. They actually were in such a hurry to get to Narva that. Charles didn't even wait for a contingent of cavalry that was on the way. The marching is, like we had said, hard. It's in rain, mud, snow. There's no food, no fodder, no cover or housing for sleep. And at times the mud is so uh, gelatinous and gloopy and sucking and thick that men won't even sleep on the ground. They got to sleep standing up for fear of drowning in the mud and in the quagmire. Uh, the... 19th sees the Swedish arrive in the uh, village of Lagana, Lagna, which is seven miles from Narva. And to double check and make sure that the city of Narva is still holding out, 
Charles fires off a couple cannons and find, hears off in the distance the uh, response of four cannon fire, which lets him know that there is indeed still a Swedish garrison fighting in Narva. And from there, all hell is about to break loose because the Battle of Narva begins the next morning. So with Peter gone on his mission to get more men and material and the Swedish appearing before them in the field, the Russians were in a weird spot. Their commanding officer was a Duke de Croix. Uh, this is a commanding officer who didn't speak Russian, who didn't have much of a relationship with the Russian officers, and was really put in, in, in control because as Peter was leaving, he just went to the uh, the the most experienced guy he had under him. The Duke de Croix was a observer for the King of Poland, so he was just along to kind of guide Peter in the ways of European war. He was also a experienced soldier. He was a, a talented soldier, uh, a man with a lot of experience under his belt, and a Habsburg former soldier and nobleman. He was in a tough spot, but he also didn't see much need for concern because he was looking at the situation. The Swedes are out there in the region to the west of the Russian lines. And, you know, again, he thought that they were going to take time to, to line up and dig entrenchments and kind of prepare for a counter siege. And he thought that they were going to take time to set up their dispositions and, and, and plan out attacks and, and figure out exactly what they were going to do. He had no idea that he was facing Charles XII, uh, who would be kind of like the, the teenager who gets the keys to the, the car and decides to, you know, put the to pedal to the metal the whole time. He really thought that he was facing a another slow-moving European army on, uh, on, on counter-siege duty. Well, the Duke de Croix would be sorrily mistaken because the Swedes begin to plan out their attack and they march down at about 10 o'clock in the morning on the 19th. They march down from the Hermansburg Ridge, which was west of the city of Narva, and they march down off of that into the clearing outside the Russian lines. And they're a few hundred yards away from the Russians at this point. And again, that's about the distance where the Duke de Croix might think, okay, they're going to start digging in and setting up their artillery and, and getting squared away. What he doesn't know is that Charles is surveying the Russian lines and he sees an opportunity. And that opportunity is that the Russians... Although they have this really well-built fortification, they have this really, uh, this really uh, intensely defensible position along this line of, of ditch and trench and wall and earthen, you know, emplacement. With uh, they even have the sharpened stakes at the top of their wall to entangle anybody trying to climb it. The Russians are really thin along the entirety. Think about it; it's four miles from from the north to the south. And yes, they have maybe 35 to 40,000 men, but that really does not, uh, when you're trying to, to cover four miles of, of, of territory, that doesn't really translate to a particularly thick defensive line. Uh, it also, the, the position that the Russians have, they have one point of supply and you know, at the same time, that line of supply is also a potential route of retreat. And that's a bridge going over the River Narva. It's the Kemperholms Bridge. And it's at the very northern part of the Russian line. So if there is a disaster and the Russian army is beaten, the entire army is going to have to somehow make it to the northern part of that line and then cross this one tiny little bridge. Charles, being the wily fox that he is, or the lion, whichever you prefer, he recognizes this is an opportunity. If they can break the Russian line and cause panic, cause chaos, not only will the Russians kind of defeat themselves, but they very well might clog up their only 
access point for retreat and make mincemeat of their own army. So he kind of uh, recognizes that there's an opportunity here, but at the same time, he has no other choice. He cannot go back. He can't march back to where he just came from. That's, again, seven days through territory that's been burned out. Uh, It's been beaten to to hell. There's no food. There's just, you know, quagmires of mud. And also, at that point, he would have a Russian army hot on his heels. So that's easily not a choice. He can't stay. He can't stay and, you know, dig in trenches and, and try and either wait out or or counter siege the Russians because a, he's wildly outnumbered. So if they decide that they just want to focus on his army, they can easily do that. And B it's in the winter. This is the middle of November, end of November. Uh, he's got no camp. He's got no supply line. He's got no supplies. He's got nothing with him. The guys have all the food that they have in their bags. So he can't really hang out there and wait for a decision, uh, in a long-term thing. So His only option, and the only option at this point, is to attack. He turns over the dispositions to his more experienced veteran general, uh, Renskold. And he comes up with a really good plan, and the plan that would eventually win the day. I'm sorry, you hear my notes turning there. Um, But Renskold's plan is to set up two columns. And these are thick columns. They are... Uh, lines of battalions of Swedish troops and they are going to punch into the Russian line. So the the benefit of a, a deep column like this is that you'll be able to, once you get in and you puncture the enemy line, then you can turn in one direction or the other and roll up that enemy line. So like uh, a a hay fork he's got two prongs and they're going to punch through the russian line and then the northern prong which will be led by reinskold will turn north and roll up the russian line there and then the southern prong which is led by a uh, i think it's a count velnik he will head south and roll up the southern part of the russian line and the in between the two prongs that section will be dealt by smaller uh, reinforcements that will just kind of squash that and sow chaos. But even more important, this kind of attack will just create a separation. It'll actually break the Russian line into three smaller forces, and then those three forces won't be able to communicate or coordinate a counterattack, uh, which would be ideal and the only way to save themselves. So everything he can do to stop that from happening Charles wants to stop that. So that's the plan. And uh, meanwhile, the, the Swedish cavalry will remain outside of the, the, the Russian defenses. They'll just be kind of roaming in the land to the west of the Russian line. And they'll be mopping up anybody trying to escape. They'll be able to lend support to uh, any kind of uh, problems or defensive positions that the Russians might last ditch hold out at. The cavalry might be able to plug up gaps. They'll be able to kind of roam around and and help as needed as a roaming reserve. And the plan is a good one. And that's exactly what happens because as the, the Swedish start to move forward, something really spectacular happens and something very lucky happens. Uh, they are moving cl- quietly. They're moving slowly, methodically, like like you expect Scandinavians to do, um, just doing their job, doing their going about their business. And they're advancing. They're a few hundred yards away, and so the Russians are are under the impression that this is going to be an attack, but they're not too too worried about it. At 2 p.m., the Swedes have a stroke of luck that is uh it's from the gods of war it has to be that can be the only explanation because uh, like napoleon said he'd rather have a lucky general than a good one well in this instance you have a lucky and a good general because charles the 12th all of a sudden his forces are blanketed by a squall a a white sheet of snow which 
living here in Maine, I know exactly what they're talking about. It's all of a sudden, you can't see 15 feet in front of you. It's just whipping, swirling snow. Uh, it's dark. It, it gets, un, or, you know, preternaturally dark. It's very kind of spooky, otherworldly. The world becomes quiet except for the wind. Um, it's just a strange thing to have kick up around you. And to have that right before a battle is is really um, fortuitous for Charles. In fact, some of his officers turn to him and they say, we shouldn't do this. We, we won't be able to communicate. We won't see what's going to happen. Um, we should stop or avoid the attack. And Charles says, no, no, no. The snow is at our back. It's going directly into the eyes. You know, it's cutting the face of the Russians. It's blinding them. We move, we go, and he, it's the right call because from a few hundred feet away or a few hundred yards away, all of a sudden the Russians now see the Swedes appear in their blue and yellow 30 feet in front of them, and they unleash a volley that cuts these guys down. It cuts the Russian defenders down. And then... All of a sudden, the Swedes just charge. They climb out of the trench. They climb over the wall. They start a brutal bayonet fighting, hand-to-hand fighting, clubbing, swords, you know, swords running men through, spears. Anything sharp that can pierce flesh is, is doing that. Anything that can clobber someone to the ground and bash them to death is doing that. The Swedes are just fierce when their blood is up, and this is a absolute disaster for the Russians. They were taken completely by surprise. Total shock was achieved. The Russian line snaps into the three parts that the Swedish plan desired. The north part is rolled up. The south part is rolled up. The center part is pushed to the bridge. So the men flee. They throw their guns down. They throw everything and they run. They try and get to that bridge. And as they get to it, so many, such a writhing mass of Russians is trying to cross it at the same time that the bridge cracks, sags, and then tumbles into the river. Hundreds of Russians will drown. Hundreds more will freeze as a result of having been dunked in the river and scrambling out. Um, men are wounded, men are dying, and they are just trying desperately to get away from the Swedish bayonets and swords. Um, and to the point where it's just utter chaos. Uh, truly, truly a, a, a chaotic scene with snow whipping around. At times, Swedish soldiers are firing on Swedish soldiers because they don't know what's going on. Uh, another aspect of the chaos of this battle. And you know who loves it? Charles the Twelfth. He is having a blast. It is, uh, it's like Charles's big day out because he's riding all over the field, inspecting and helping to uh, direct attacks and plug gaps and and redirect forces. Uh, he's having the time of his life, and he's had numerous horses shot out from under him. At one point, he gets a, a soldier to give him his horse, and he, he offhandedly is supposed to have said, uh, I guess the enemy wants me to get my horse practice in, uh, or something to that effect, which gives you an idea of how much this man is, is he, you know, he's Mars. In his mind, he is the god of war. He is this, uh, this creation made specifically to do what he's doing in this moment. Um, the, the Russian army is broken but not destroyed the the majority of it is still in uh you know under arms but it's not like they are taking a particularly active role in the battle the northern part of the battle line of the russian battle line that had been rolled up by the swedes after the initial attack kind of found its footing a little bit uh duke de croix and the other foreign officers were with this particular part of the russian line they surrender early on because they're actually afraid that they might get shot, might get fragged by the Russians because, um, you know, they're they're calling for surrender and they're t- trying to direct battle. And these Russians are like, I don't know who you are. I don't know what you're saying. I don't understand you. And you're just in the way. I'm just trying to survive. You can either get shot or go home or whatever, but get out of my way. And so Duke de Croix and a bunch of the other uh, foreign officers surrender to the Swedes feeling that they would be safer in Swedish hands than in Russians. Um, The Russians in this northern section, they actually make it to the supply wagons and the ammo wagons, and they kind of build a strong point safe house 
where with with all these wagons and they are able to hold out for a while but eventually charles recognizes he has to break them now or he's going to win this battle and still lose it because there are still 25,000 Russians with weapons in the vicinity, and so he's still outnumbered two to one, even though he's broken the entire Russian army. So he goes about quickly encircling this little strong point with his, uh, the leftovers of the Swedish army, and he pulls up his light cannon and some of the Russian cannons and starts to bring them down to bear on this strong point. But before he even has to use them, these Russians that are encircled realize the futility of this and uh, they surrender as well. So going into the night of the 19th into the 20th, the Swedes are victorious, but it's kind of a an easy victory because there's still this southern portion of the Russian line that is willing to fight, but maybe, or at least capable of fighting, but maybe not willing to fight. And they also have a huge amount of Russian prisoners but no way of really keeping them prisoner. So Charles makes this really inspired decision to have some of the Swedish soldiers and some of the Russian captives, they are going to help each other fix that bridge, and that will play into his decision at the end of the battle. But before the battle can be completely declared a victory, Charles has to defeat the Russians in the southern part of the section of the Russian line. So he focuses down on that, and the Russian commander there had been earlier in the battle wounded. He had a night to think about what resistance would look like and the odds. Uh, his men probably had a long night of no sleep thinking about how terrifying those those Swedes were when they came out of the snow like like ice giants and uh, swinging and hollering and firing like madmen. So they spent that long, cold night thinking about the potential fight the next day. And on the morning of the 20th at dawn, they surrendered as well, which means that Narva, the battle itself, is done. Charles Twelfth is the victor of the field, and it is quite a victory. The Russians lost between eight to 10,000 dead, wounded, or drowned. The wounded also un were unlikely to survive traveling back to Novgorod. Uh, this is the, they would be walking home in the middle of winter in, in the Baltic area, in northern Russia. It's unlikely that they were going to make it. Uh, the captives amounted to as many as 20,000 with 10 generals, 10 colonels, 39 other officers, and one surgeon who happened to be the personal doctor of Peter the Great. The 20,000 men, and maybe more, it's, I've, saw, I've seen a bunch of different numbers. That's kind of a crazy thing because you still have only 10,000 Swedes. So they're outnumbered by their prisoners, which gives, uh, gives Charles Twelfth a very interesting conundrum. It gives him a, a real weird situation to be in. What he basically does is he fixes that bridge and then he sends the Russians home. He says, you are going to keep your colors and your standards. All your artillery pieces are now ours. Any valuables, any goods, any stores, any ammo, it's all ours. But you guys go home because I don't really care. You're, you don't matter to me. I'm not afraid of you. You're Russian soldiers. You're nothing more than uh, you know, you're, you're just about as useful as, as straw men. You're, you're basically scarecrows. So he sends them home um, and doesn't even keep his, his captured uh, soldiers. He, and it will be a mistake. We'll get back to it. But So he's captured generals, colonels, officers, 20,000 men. He also has captured four howitzers, 145 cannons, 32 mortars, 10 cannonballs or 10,000 cannonballs, 400 barrels of powder, and all of that for the loss of 31 officers, 646 men killed, 1,200 wounded. Really, one of the more lopsided battles you're going to read about in European history, um, especially given the the way it unfolded with the weather and the the defensive positions being attacked. Uh, really, truly, 
a a wildly successful day for Charles the Twelfth. And that news went all the way and made the rounds all around Europe. Everybody was going over and above uh, themselves to exclaim that there's a new Alexander on the loose in the north. There's a, a new Julius Caesar that this guy is, you know, he's one to be reckoned with. He's the little lion. He's the, the reincarnation of a Gustavus Adolphus. And this is true in a tactical sense. However, I would contend that the lessons learned here at the Battle of Narva are bad ones for Charles. For Peter, totally different animal. Peter actually learns quite a few valuable lessons. At Narva, Charles decides that he is not afraid of the Russian soldier and it's not worth fighting. The, the, the Russian soldier is not worthy of his attention. And so he makes the uh, really questionable decision not to follow up his victory. So a lot of generals in history have repeatedly make, made this mistake. I think one of the great ones in terms of American history is after Gettysburg, Meade not following up Lee. Um, and, and maybe it, with good cause, it's always possible that the, the, the forces that were victorious or too tired or too expended or too spread out, or whatever it might be. But here at Narva, Charles XII had nothing between him and Moscow. Had he followed up and gone straight to Moscow, now he probably couldn't have taken it or held it or, um, you know, it wouldn't have probably mattered in the, in the sense that he's not conquering Russia because he takes Moscow. But even threatening Moscow with a field army in its vicinity immediately puts the Romanov reign in danger. It puts Tsar Peter the Great in danger. It allows... Charles the ability to dictate um, from a position of extreme power what the Russian you know situation would be. Instead, Charles chooses to basically like a teenager, he said, I beat up this guy, I beat up that guy, now I'm gonna go beat up that guy. So he turns around and he takes his army to find Augustus and beat up on the elector of Saxony, who's also the king of Poland and Lithuania. This is a terrible move. It is not something that uh, I think he would do again if he had the choice to do it again. If he knew everything we know now, I bet you Charles XII turns around and heads to Moscow next time. But he didn't do that. He goes to Poland. He spends the next few years chasing Augustus all over Poland, Lithuania, and beating him and instilling and installing one of his picked men to be the king of Poland. So he is successful but the whole time he's doing that, the Russians are revamping their military. They're training their men better. They're re-equipping their men. They're building a modern European-style military. And then the next time the Russians and the Swedes meet at Poltava, the sides have complete, completely flipped. And it's one of uh, the, you know, one of the great battles in history, one of the most decisive battles in history, and it ends with Charles XII running away and spending years in an Ottoman uh, kind of, Im not imprisonment per se, but uh, under house arrest in the Ottoman Empire. He'll eventually find his way back to Sweden, but the Swedish Empire is, is really weak at this point. Um, by 1718, everybody's against him, including now he's not just facing, facing the, the Poles and the Danes and the Russians. He's also facing the Dutch and the British and the Prussians. Um, it's The cards are stacked against him, and the end is near. At a siege in Norway, the young lion is shot and killed on the front lines uh, in the head, I believe, and... There are rumors that he was fragged, that a tired-of-war Swedish soldier uh, decided that the best thing he could do for his country was to kill this bloody king. He is one of the great tacticians in history. He's definitely a precursor to a guy like Frederick the, the Great and Napoleon. Uh, he's, he's one of the 
most brilliant battlefield maneuver uh, commanders, but I don't think he's... I, I don't think I would pick him. If I had one battle to win, maybe. But if I had to win a war, he's not my guy. Uh, he just he didn't learn the right lessons, and then he didn't apply victories well. He didn't work in the realm of, of, of reality. He, he thought that war could be fought as a singular thing and not in concert with other aspects of, of geopolitics like diplomacy and economics and all that. He thought that war was, was the goal and the means. And um, a guy like Peter the Great realized that you have to, you know, it's a, it's a multi-dimensional chess game. It's not, you know, straight up uh, regular game of chess. And, and Peter the Great has, has, in my estimation, really grown because I, I never thought much of him uh, until I always, as a kid, I always looked at Poltava and thought it was this really dramatic and, and kind of sad story of, of the Swedes having their last big moment destroyed. But I think it's actually a really fascinating um, success story from the Russian point of view where you have this, this incredible reformer this czar in the in the most backwards and kind of stale country in all of Europe. This country that really was was maybe a hair's breadth outside of the middle Middle Ages and the medieval Europe is is now being thrown into the modern Enlightenment age. It's almost there's some echoes of the um, uh, the the Japanese in the 1860s and 70s deciding to join the modern age and having to basically like uh, you know supercharge their advancements and getting into the modern world so you there's some echoes of that at play and i think that's interesting the other thing that i like about peter is he he recognizes his uh failure he he acknowledges it acknowledged the failure of his his army and and then goes on to talk about how he used it as a way to plan for the future. He's quoted in Massey's book as saying, quote, The victory then was indeed a sad and severe blow to us. It seemed to rob us of all hope for the future and to come from the wrath of God. But now, when we think of it rightly, we ascribe it rather to the goodness of God than to his anger. For if we had conquered then, when we knew as little of war as, as of government, this piece of luck might have had unfortunate consequences. That we lived through this disaster, or rather this good fortune, forced us to be industrious, laborious, and experienced. So he totally understood the assignment here, to use a parlance of our day. Um, he got it, that this, this was a, a defeat... You know, it was a victory wrapped up in a defeat. It was a gift because it gave him years to to reassess the situation and figure out how to defeat Charles the Twelfth, and he went about doing that again at Poltava. One quick side story before I wrap up here: um, Duke Ducroy has a weird little final note. He ends up in Swedish uh, kind of internment for the rest of the war or for the next few years. He is living with the uh, a Swedish lord, and that guy pays all of his debts. And then when he dies, Duke de Croix is penniless, and the Russians don't pay back his debts. And the guy who was in charge of him basically finds this old, old, ancient law that says if you die in debt, you can't be buried. So he puts the Duke de Croix's body in a, in a crypt, and because of the, the like airtight situation in this crypt, his body doesn't decay, it just mummifies. And so for the next 200 years, as a novelty kind of sideshow thing, people would show up and look at the corpse, the mummified corpse of this losing general, and just to kind of gawk in awe. Um, a pretty ignominious end to what was a fairly ignominious uh, military career for the Duke de Croix. All right, so that is the Great Northern War and the Battle of Narva, uh, one of the most important battles in the Great Northern War and one of the most important wars in European, modern European history. Uh, without the 
success of Charles XII at Narva, uh, reconfiguring or, or figuring out what Russian history would look like with a, a stronger Sweden to its north or a, a, a conquered Moscow in 1701 or something to some combination of those things uh, would, would really drastically change the, the historical board uh, it really would make you wonder, you know, does Russia focus more on its east? Does it become more central or eastern? Uh, does the desire for a port in the Baltics ever subside? If there's a strong Sweden willing to smack them down anytime the Russians got a little antsy? Is there a, a totally different outlook to the Napoleonic Wars if there's a strong Swedish empire uh, willing to either help Napoleon or put an end to his, his expansion into Central Europe. Uh, all these things kind of are, are bouncing around the head and they're interesting to play with. So by all means, uh, do so. And if you have any great ones or any interesting thoughts or comments, please reach out to me. I'm on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. Uh, you can email me at the show uh, website. Uh, we love to hear from you guys. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for rating, reviewing, subscribing, and sharing. Share, 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 please. Uh, I want as many people to listen as I can get, not just because I am a, uh, you know, a bit of a fame hound, but because I love talking about this stuff and I love kind of interacting with you guys. So um, share the show. Next up, we have the, we, well, we're returning to the high seas. We've got a naval battle, Vigo Bay and the hunt for a Spanish galleon fleet. So I'm excited to get to that. And uh, again, thanks for joining me. We'll talk to you soon.